Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks, today with Ben Miller of the Curious Objects podcast and the magazine Antiques. Hello, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, Ben, right off the bat, how did you get started in antiques? Well, do you want the short story or the long story? I'm fine with the long story. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I mean, the short story is I met a guy at a bar. (laughs) All right, all right, strong start, good start. But the long version, you know, if you go back to childhood, yeah, I grew up in uh, rural Tennessee, like in one of those tiny little mountain towns. And, you know, Southerners love antiques with a particular like flavor that you don't find any place else in the world. <laughs> that is really true. So I was like inundated with that from a very young age. And I, I was always interested in antiques, but you know, I never got around to like studying them or taking them very seriously until after college, you know, I'd come up north for school and you know, you, you get wistful about your hometown and your home state. I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice to like go back and do some kind of a project around like Southern culture? And I thought, what is the most like central feature of Southern culture that I can think of? And you probably like a lot of different answers probably just came to your (laughs) mind. But the one that I focused on was antiques. And I thought, yeah, okay, so you drive around the South. You find antique shops that are, you know, on the town square, they're mom and pop shops, they're generation after generation of, you know, dealers. And they've got, you know, beautiful old objects with great stories behind them. And then you also like drive down the highway and get off at the the interstate exit. And there's a little shack that says like antiques (laughs) with a roadside billboard. And you walk in and it's all this plastic crap from China from the 1980s. (laughs) Yep. But because it's like branded antique, it has this aura that Southerners especially love. This is true in New England, too, I'm sure. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to like look at both sides of that story and the way that people connect with antiques? So I was I was actually going to go down and like work on a writing project, maybe do a, a magazine story or a book or something. But the problem was I realized I didn't actually know anything about antiques. And, you know, unlike some journalists, I thought maybe I should actually (laughs) learn about what I'm writing about before I write about it. So I also needed to pay my rent in New York. And I thought, okay, why don't I kill two birds with one stone? I'll try to get a job in the antiques business. But what I didn't realize was how hard it would be to get a job in a field where I literally had no qualifications or experience or connections. (laughs) That'll happen. It is the best way to learn, but I do see that you're up against some pretty impossible odds. (laughs) Well, you know, I was young and naive. But yeah, so I I like went around and knocked on a bunch of doors and people were like, why are you interested in this? Like, you're way too young because I don't know if you know, like antique dealers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're usually pretty old. Um, (laughs) So so I was like, uh, you know, people were interested, but nobody was actually pulling the trigger to hire me. And I was getting pretty frustrated and, and I was about to just give up on the whole thing. When one night I was hanging out at this bar because a a friend of mine is a jazz singer. She was performing there and the guy sitting next to me at the bar, it turns out he was there to listen to the same person. So we got to chatting and he asked about what I do for a living. And I, you know, I was working in politics, but I told him like I was trying to get out and I was thinking about getting a job in the antiques business. And as I went on and told him this whole story that I just told you, he got this funny look on his face. And finally, he like, he cut me off and he said, Ben, what would you say if I told you that I was an antiques dealer? (laughs) And he was like, I would say you're full of shit, because what are the odds of that? (laughs) 
But it turned out that was absolutely the case. He was the real deal. He was a, a dealer in, in antique English and American silver. We really hit it off. He hired me. And that was, what, uh, seven or eight years ago. I still work at the same firm. And now I'm a, a specialist in antique English and American silver. Extremely cool. Sorry, that was a very long version, but... Uh... It was awesome. It's a very Dungeons & Dragons origin story. Like, you meet a guy in a tavern, and suddenly you're on an adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It was like I rolled a, a natural 20 or something. <laughs> I don't know if what it is. I, I think silver dealers are the most gregarious. Is that a compliment? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> just making sure. I think silver dealers are the people who are, like, the most excited to share what they know and, like, converse and trade and talk. And I've always been really, like, impressed with that. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the material. It's, like... I had never looked at a piece of silver in my life before meeting this guy, Tim, but it's infectious. It really gets under your skin. And uh, yeah, I'm an evangelist now. <laughs> so what excites you about antiques? Oh, God. Yeah, where to start? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people who are like listening to your podcast are probably will probably kind of yawn when I say some of this because it's the same stuff that motivates everybody. But <laughs> like anyone who collects anything or like is interested in antiques at all, I think can relate to the idea of the storytelling, you know, connecting with the past, the way that looking at these objects or handling them or studying them can like bring you back to another time. Like it's all a bit cliched, but it's very much true. There's that like magical effect of physical connection with another time period, which I don't really know of any other way to experience that. And you know, sometimes that's like specific people. Like you you have an object that you know belonged to, you know, Mrs. Dog's body in, in <laughs> 1735. And you can like go and read Mrs. Dog's body's letters and hold her like bowl in your hand and think, holy shit, like this is the same thing that this woman was eating her porridge out of 300 years ago while she was writing this letter that I can still read. And that's obviously that's amazing. But but sometimes it's more general. It's just like, wow, like this object tells us about a way of life or even like a little mannerism or habit or social moray that people had in a certain place at a certain time that seems really alien to us. But then you realize like they're also people just like me. And, and that's a really cool connection as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the top of the list for me. But there's also the element that's like the same thing that draws people to art collection. Um, whether it's like antique or contemporary art, which is, you know, the craftsmanship and the connoisseurial elements. And this is maybe, well, I was going to say I'm a little like biased as a <laughs> silver dealer, which I definitely am. But obviously you find, you know, connoisseurship across every, every field and, and craftsmanship. But when it comes to pieces of silver and other, other metalwork, for me, it's like, you know, looking at the surface of the object and seeing the blows from the hammer that shaped it. Yeah. And, you know, if you know a little about the way these things were made, you can kind of picture yourself in the workshop while the smith was beating away at it or, you know, applying the solder or doing whatever they were doing. And just by looking at the object, you can kind of imagine that process step by step and visualize it. And the, the level of expertise that these people had, I'm thinking particularly of like 18th century English silversmiths, which in some ways was kind of the peak of the, the craft. You know, they had this very strong guild system. There was just so much inherited technical knowledge about how to do this stuff. They had to heat objects to temperatures that they had to be accurate within just a few degrees. And we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of degrees, right? Very, very hot. And they had no thermometers. 
Like they had to get it exactly right just by looking at it and by judging the color of the metal as it was heated and knowing that's exactly the right hue of orange where like if I heat it a few more degrees then that solder is going to run and the whole thing's going to fall apart. But if I heat it a few less degrees then I'm not going to be able to add the next element to it, right? So it's just this incredible knowledge that's like not written down anywhere that was just passed down through the generations. And, and there are people today who still have that. But that to me is like, it's kind of miraculous to see that level of competence. Absolutely. It's a wild skill. Yeah, that's very beautifully put. Thank you. About just like all the unseen elements that go into like the finished product. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's something that like we don't often think about when we rummage through a, a garage sale or a Christie's auction. You know, it's like you see the finished product, but if you stop for a minute and think about what was really required to produce that, it can be really mind-blowing. Absolutely. When I was younger, I actually used to, I've always had a bit of an affinity for silver because a lot of elements of it, like you said, are really mysterious. Like the knowledge of how to make it is very tightly guarded and in some cases lost. And a lot of times I would just look at like a fork and think about how miraculous it was to have like a fine handcrafted art object that you literally chewed on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's so mundane and artistic at the same time. Yeah. I mean, my most prized possession, and I probably will like change my mind about this in 20 minutes, but um, <laughs> it's actually my flatware service, which is not antique at all. It was made within the last few years. Um, I actually did a, uh, a Curious Objects uh, episode about this, but it's handmade sterling silver, which was produced and, and is produced today in a workshop in Sheffield, England using almost entirely historical methods. So it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only shop in the world that is still producing handmade, fully hand-forged silver flatware. And the process is ridiculously laborious. And you can actually go on YouTube and like see long videos of the production process for a single fork. And it's wild, it's absolutely wild. Not just the amount of time, but the amount of expertise that goes into making it. But I gotta say, like when you hold it in your hand, you can tell. And I don't think I'm being like whimsical about that. I think it's really like a cold hard fact. Yeah, um, I agree, yeah. You can really, really tell the difference. So yeah, I just want to emphasize that there are still people today who have that kind of knowledge. It's just, you know, it feels a little harder to come by. This might be a little left field, but what are your feelings on silver markings? Because hmm. in my whole career, that has tormented me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's funny. So, you know, a lot of people are sort of familiar with the idea of hallmarking, because if you look at silver, like, you know, the first question is, well, is this actually silver? And one of the ways people tell is they look for marks on the object. And the word hallmark actually has an interesting etymology, because it literally refers to a hall that is specifically the Goldsmiths Hall in London which is the headquarters of the Goldsmiths Trade Guild in England. Oh. And that same organization, which it's still alive and, and active today, they still have an important like legal responsibility in, in the British government. <laughs> but they, um, they go back to the 14th century and they instituted, well, at the insistence of the king, they created this system of hallmarking where every piece of silver had to be tested by the guild, by the, the Goldsmiths Hall to make sure that it was up to the sterling standard, which is 92.5% silver. And that was to make sure that people weren't selling, you know, substandard wares. And that was really important to the government because silver is money. And if you start to debase the silver that you're selling, you're essentially debasing the currency, which can lead to inflationary spirals and like other huge economic problems. 
So every piece of silver had to be sent to the Goldsmiths Hall, where they struck a series of marks on it to show that it was legal to sell. And if they found that the piece wasn't up to standard, they'd send it back. And if they found that people were trying to cheat the system, they would, you know, chop their hands off or something. (laughs) So yeah, it's like a very old tradition. And, you know, different countries have different hallmarking systems. Some of them were more formal than others. In America, with a very, very small exception of Baltimore in the early 19th century, there was never any official hallmarking organization or institution. So, you know, it was just totally laissez-faire, like the silversmith could sell whatever he wanted or whatever she wanted, and the buyer would just have to take them at their word. Or, you know, maybe they'd go and find another silversmith to like test it and make sure. But yeah, it was like very much the American spirit of, you know, the government isn't going to protect anybody. (laughs) too true (laughs) like those coddling old dodgers in england but yeah so i don't know it can be totally fascinating like sometimes you'll find pieces of english silver where the person working at the hall that day was like they got their punches mixed up and they put the wrong marks on a bunch of pieces and you can almost speculate that like everything with this particular like error was probably done on the same afternoon like after a boozy (laughs) lunch Um, So there, yeah, there can be a lot of personality to it, but it's also like, it's one of the key indicators that we look for when we're trying to figure out if a piece is authentic, because faking the hallmarks is one of the more difficult aspects of trying to make a piece of fake silver. Fascinating stuff. I don't know if I answered your question at all, but I just kind of went off. No, I mean, yeah, very much. (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) You have to be careful what you ask me, because as you're quickly (laughs) discovering, like... Shakespeare said brevity is the soul of wit, but um, Ray Bradbury said digression is the soul of wit. And I have to say, I, I'm more on his team. <laughs> I, yeah, I've always been on Bradbury's team, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just it's one of those things that I marvel over because there was a period of time where I was like, I'm going to learn silver because it's a question I get asked a lot. And when it came to imported hallmarks, I was totally lost. Yeah, And yeah. it turns out, so are most people. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean... You would think it would be the sort of thing where there's like one big online database that has all the information you need, but it's not true. I mean, there are websites that can be really helpful, but there are just so many hallmarks, just thousands and thousands and thousands of them from around the world over the centuries. And often it's not as simple as just like finding the hallmark that corresponds to the picture on your on your object. Like, you know, they can mean very different things depending on the context. So, yeah, it's tricky. And it's one of these areas where you just have to like, I don't know, look at a thousand objects and (laughs) read a bunch of books and study up. Yeah. 20 years later, hopefully you have some inkling of what you're talking about. (laughs) Make friends with a lot of dealers and say, hey, you know what's going on? It's a little like it's very Da Vinci code. Totally. Totally. Very code breaking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that like the detective work aspect, that's another thing that's like super exciting about antiques in general. Just tracking down the story behind everything. Yeah, that is that has got to be one of the best parts. Yeah, yeah. Circling back around to Curious Objects, now that we know how you got into antiques, how did you get to the magazine Antiques? And how did that, I am assuming, become Curious Objects, the podcast? Yeah, so sort of interesting. I mean, I, I've been a podcast fan since like the early days of podcasts. I just like the medium. I was thinking, you know, this was like, I had been dealing in silver for a couple of years. I had started to like learn a pretty good amount about antique English and American silver and was starting to like appreciate the value of expertise and connoisseurship. And I was thinking, you know, I'd like to, even though this is my area of specialty, like silver, I'd like to learn about some other areas. I've always really enjoyed talking with dealers across different fields. 
And one thing that I noticed is that a lot of these dealers are amazing storytellers. I mean, they're like they're professional storytellers, literally. You know, they call themselves antique dealers, but like, yeah. <laughs> okay, they're technically selling you an object, but what they're really selling you is the story that they tell about it. So a lot of them are great storytellers, but they're shit writers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I was thinking about the magazine Antiques, which is, you know, it's a great publication. They're in, you know, celebrating their 100th year this year. Oh, wow. And they've, they've got this amazing pedigree. And they publish a lot of really excellent pieces. But like some of the best stories in the business could never be published there because the people who tell them just don't know how to put a pen to paper, you know, or maybe they know how to put a pen to paper, but they definitely don't know how to type on a keyboard. <laughs> so I thought, like, wouldn't it be cool to get some of these people on the microphone and you know, get them to tell these amazing stories to really like utilize their talents in a way that's more natural for them? So yeah, I went to the magazine and, you know, I had this idea and they were excited about it. So we pretty quickly teamed up and yeah, that became Curious Objects. And we've, you know, gone in a lot of different directions with it. And we're sort of excited about, um, you know, we're, we're on a bit of a hiatus right now, but we're just working really hard on a new season of episodes that's going to be a lot more ambitious, more highly produced than what we've done before. Very exciting. Yeah, super excited about that. It's a lot of work, but we're trying to like find these incredible stories and, and get them out in the world. Now, what would you say are the challenges of antiques podcasting specifically? <laughs> oh, God. Because we've noticed some things in our <laughs> years of doing antiques streaks. And yeah. it's, it's just nice to talk to someone who might know what that's like. Someone who gets it. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell me about it. Actually, yeah, this is really cool to, you know, normally I'm having these conversations with people who are like, what's a podcast? Where do I watch it? It's like radio, but it's on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember The Shadow? It's like that, but not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But it's like it's not on PBS, so uh, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really interested to hear, to hear your thoughts about that. But since you asked me first, I guess, yeah, I mean, look, let's be real. Like, the biggest challenge is the time that it takes to do it. Yeah, yep. You know, I mean, okay, I love the sweet, sweet antiques advertising dollars that we bring in. <laughs> but, you know, it's a labor of love. It's a nights and weekends gig. And that can be a lot on top of a day job, especially when you're, like, working on a on a tough project. So yeah, it's like anything where the you can be really excited about the finished product and that's great. But then there are those times when it's like, oh God, you know, another chunk of work that I've got to get done on Thursday night or Saturday night or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I think the challenge that's like most rewarding is the challenge of learning these new fields. Because it's not that I have to be an expert in a field to like talk about it. And you, you guys do an amazing job with your, your research. Aw, thank you. <laughs> you cover like so much ground you know like it's kind of like i don't know if you're an expert in mechanical engineering like you can go anywhere in the world and any place that people are doing like mechanical engineering related stuff you probably have some good knowledge to help you figure that out but if you're an expert in antiques well a lot of that knowledge is not really transferable you know i know a lot about antique silver but that doesn't mean that i know a lot about antique glass no that's true. So it's kind of like starting from square one every time. I mean, it's super challenging, but it's also really exciting. Yeah. That learning is like a big part of the thrill. I've definitely had issues, not issues per se, but like um, motivations maybe in that when people find out that you're into even just one thing, it's suddenly it's like a free for all and it'll be like, well, how old is my furniture? And be like, I don't know, ma'am, I do books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. But I can find out. Yeah. I can call a guy who can call a guy who can call a guy. <laughs> oh, people love that shit. They're like, oh, you're an antiques person? What's this worth? Yep. <laughs> like, uh, let me Google that for you. We're cleaning out grandma's attic. Do you have space in your car? <laughs> <laughs> It's rough, too, because then, I don't know about you, but it seems like you're on the same wavelength, but then I just feel motivated to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn everything I can about this piece of furniture. <laughs> totally, totally. My mom just literally, yesterday, she sent me this, like, she runs this nonprofit, and somebody, like, gave them a couple of antique objects. So she was, like, sending me pictures of them, like, what's this worth? What's this worth? Well, let's be honest, like, I love my mom, and if she had asked me, like, do you want to even be involved with this? I would say yes, absolutely. But at the same time it's like my best knowledge about what these things are worth literally comes from a google search (laughs) (laughs) yeah but okay i mean in fairness like i can look at a google search and maybe get a little more information about it than a total layperson just because i know a little bit about how the business works (laughs) and pricing and stuff yeah sometimes it's about knowing what questions to ask that a layperson doesn't necessarily know totally totally you just kind of know what avenues to bark down (laughs) yeah absolutely one of the things that um, that's really entertaining about working at a, a brick and mortar antique shop is like people come in all the time, right? And the sign outside our shop says, you know, silver jewelry works of art. That's what we deal in. But that doesn't mean people won't waltz in, you know, carrying a giant copper statue. <laughs> and then they're like, well, I can't believe you don't want to buy this from me. Like, it's obviously like really valuable. Yeah, it's metal. What? <laughs> <laughs> It's metal. It's old. What doesn't qualify? Yeah, here? come on. <laughs> I had a guy come in the shop once. This was years ago. And this is why I said a giant copper thing, because he came in literally carrying, like dragging two suitcases behind him. <laughs> And he tossed them up on the table and opened them up. And one of them had this big copper thing and like a arts and crafts jardinier. And he had apparently his late mother had told him that he didn't have to worry about his retirement because this object was like so valuable. Oh, no. And I mean, it's not. I will say like I'm not an arts and crafts metalwork specialist, but I know something about the field. Forget about retirement. It's worth like a nice meal at Applebee's. (laughs) So... That is how I'm doing all of my appraisals from now on. <laughs> how, how good are you going to be eating in the neighborhood? How many sliders will this get me? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. well, I mean, in New York, we measure it in pizza slices, but that's okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's like, how do you break it to somebody? It's heart-wrenching because, like, it was his mother. His mother had told him, like, son, you don't have to worry. Like, this thing is, you know, it's an amazing object. And I like, it's an amazing find. And it's worth so much money and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, he had also brought in a couple of pieces of jewelry. You know, they had some precious stones in them. They were probably worth on the order of a few thousand bucks each. But when I asked him what he was thinking about trying to get for them, and to be clear, like, they were not pieces that we were really interested in for our shop. So I I was, you know, relatively objective about it, I think. I asked him, well, so do you have any idea of, like, what kind of a price you might be looking for for these? And he said, well, this one is probably $300,000, and this one is probably $600,000, and this one is probably $250,000. And if I were a wise man, at this point we were talking over email, at that point I would have just stopped. Yeah, I could see that. (laughs) I could see where you'd be tempted to. But I'm not a wise man. 
Because I had this mental image of this poor guy, like, walking around to all the jewelry dealers on Madison Avenue and just humiliating himself, you know, asking for these insane prices. And so I wrote back and I tried to be very gentle and I was like, they're not for us, but like, just FYI, I think the prices that you're asking here are pretty far out of line with, like, market prices. Based on my estimation, you're probably talking about X thousand dollars and X thousand dollars. Unless there's something, I was like hedging all my bets. I was like, unless there's something really important I don't know about these. Like, I don't know, maybe this was like George Clooney's earring or something. I don't know. Yeah, do they have like some completely insane provenance with documents to back <laughs> yeah. it up? Like, Yeah. So I was like, but you know, unless there's something really major that I'm missing here, like you, you might just need to temper your expectations a bit. And uh, well, that was the only two star Google review that our shop has ever gotten. Oof. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he replied to me and it just went off the hook. So yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. I think there's this like antiques roadshow phenomenon and I don't want to put the blame on the show because it's a great show, but it creates these expectations of, well, I'm going to find something in the attic and it's going to be worth millions of dollars. Yeah, it happens, but it's like the lottery, you know? Yeah. It probably is not going to happen to you. Yeah, it's um Antiques Roadshow plus the slow, insidious climb of eBay. Yeah, yeah. Like, those two things together have created such a, I don't know if I want to call it toxic, but, like, a pretty unhealthy attitude around antiques from a lot of people. Yeah. That and the, like, social media clout you get from being like, I found this priceless Tiffany necklace at a thrift store for two dollars yeah yeah and it's just like you planted that one and two (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 and just the more social media gets the worse it gets because now we do have people faking amazing finds at savers and things and it's very unrealistic expectations yeah and it's the really other unfortunate aspect of that beyond the like manipulation is i think it really takes your eye off the ball of what matters with these objects and i'm not saying it's like that the financial value of them doesn't matter it does but you know the value isn't some god-given like factual number that just exists in a void it's like it's worth what somebody is willing to pay for it yep (laughs) and what somebody is willing to pay for it is like based on how much they like it and what excites them about it and what's like interesting about this object and it's all wrapped up in that seemingly very simple question what is this worth and it's like i don't know even in my field where i'm a specialist and my colleagues are specialists and other people at other shops are specialists something comes up for auction and we all might talk with each other like what do we think it's worth and you've got five people in this field who have been in the field for years if not decades who live and breathe this stuff and they'll give you five totally different answers yeah and that's just talking about what people in the trade are willing to buy for it that's very different from what's the auction value what's the retail value what's the insurance value what's the appraisal value you know there's no simple answer to that like seemingly simple question and that's another antiques roadshow phenomenon of the like the dollar sign pops up and you know it's hard to get people to understand that that's that's not really the way that the world works unfortunately no yeah it's kind of like the blowback on the industry being like this beautiful personal experience is that people get their emotions really tied up in it yeah yeah and it's very hard to talk them down from that yeah and it's one thing if it's like some billionaire collector who just buys random shit all the time but it's another if it's like this poor guy whose whose mom probably saw something similar to this jardiniere someplace you know in some magazine and thought oh my god i bought something incredible yeah but it wasn't and she didn't 
Boy, I've gotten us on a really like morbid, <laughs> no, no, depressing. I think it's an important topic. Like, I think you're completely right in that the question of what is this worth is a really I don't want to call it a plague because it is a valuable question, but like it's tricky and it's extremely complicated. And people will get not most of them. Most people are very reasonable, but people will get very aggressive or unhappy when you try to explain to them that it is super complicated. Like, there's so much that goes into that question. Yeah, but I think being a complicated answer makes it a much more interesting answer and much more a question worth asking. Yeah. Because while there is no set worth price, there are a number of factors that can contribute to worth, like provenance and the story behind an object and the history of it and how it was made. And like, you can give all this information to someone to make them more or less interested in an object. And while that may not have a fixed input on what the price ultimately ends up being, it does make the object itself more fun, question mark? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Can we get into some stories of like the other side of that coin where people are actually thrilled to discover the cool history behind something that they found? Because that, yeah, I mean, that's the side that's like heartwarming in the antiques trade is... (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've <laughs> we had uh, a postcard collector, very much just ruled by whatever they like to look at, and they found a really charming portrait. They brought it up and they said, well, there's just something about this. It just makes me smile. And I said, that guy looks extremely familiar. Give me a sec. And I went and got the guy who owned the place. And I said, let me know if this looks like someone we know. And it ended up being our old boss, the guy who got me an antiques, Felix, his dad. And on the back was an inscription to his mother. Wow. We still sold it to him, but it was really, really fun. He was there for like two hours just talking to us about his history and just going like, you'll never believe this. But like, yeah, we worked for him. We were close with him. Like he was like an uncle figure to me and just telling all these stories about like his dad's time in the service. And it was all just a photograph postcard that happened to end up in a bin. That's incredible. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That one's one of my favorite just because it's it's so like, what are the odds? <laughs> and that's kind of what we're saying. Like it sold for $2. But he came back a couple years later and said it's still his favorite piece just because it's so interesting. Yeah. Well, I had one that was actually part of the subject of a recent Curious Objects episode, which if I can do a little, you know, self-promotion. By all means. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to spoil the whole episode because it's this story about the most incredible coincidence that I've ever witnessed or even maybe heard about in the antiques business. But I'll tell part of the story that's like very relevant to this conversation because this fellow came into the shop one day and, you know, none of us had ever seen him before. He wasn't like a known client of ours. He wasn't somebody in the trade or anything. But he was like, hey, you know, uh, I heard you guys deal in old silver and I've got this old family piece and, you know, I don't know much about it. It's a bowl. He took it out, showed it to us. It's about, you know, six inches across, just a, you know, fairly plain bowl, a little engraving on one side. And he said, you know, I know it's been in my family for generations, but I don't know how many generations. And we're just sort of reevaluating at this point. You know, the family is spread out a lot. We're not really sure what to do with this. Is this something really valuable that we should be keeping? Or is it something that we should not worry about, you know, throw in a closet or just sell at a yard sale? Or, or is it some treasure? Like, what, what's going on with it? We have no idea. You know, I told him to to leave it with us for a little while and let me look into it. And, you know, there were no marks on it. There were no hallmarks, but there were there was also no maker's mark. There were no marks of any kind. So that wasn't helpful. But based on the style of the bowl and and the style of the engraving, it looked pretty clearly like an 18th century American piece probably about 1720, 1730, 1740, which makes it fairly rare. 
but without a mark on it, like if it had an important silversmith's mark on it, that's one thing. But without a mark, you kind of think, well, okay, like it's a really old bowl, but what can we say about it? But fortunately, the engraving gave us a little bit of a hint. Like the engraving basically looks like spaghetti. <laughs> it's like all these crisscrossing, swirling lines. But the guy who brought it in, whose name is Dan, what he didn't know about it, about that engraving is, it's actually a style called a reverse cipher or a mirror cipher. Whoa. And what that is, is it's a monogram. So it's initials of somebody's name written in like this very elaborate cursive and written forwards, but then also written on top of itself backwards. <laughs> Kind of like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, like writing in the mirror. Yeah. So the result is something that looks just like gibberish. But if you actually go in and trace the lines and you can like, I just did a Photoshop job where I colored all the different lines to try to clarify the letters. And so I was able to identify the monogram, which were the letters PDL. And based on genealogy of Dan's family, we were able to tie this monogram to his direct ancestor, Peter Delancey who is, you know, the namesake of Delancey Street, who was like this very important early New York City Bronx merchant. Oh, that is wild. And from there, we could trace the entire family history. And this bowl had been in New York, it had been in Charleston, actually during the Civil War, and had somehow escaped, like almost all the silver in Charleston got melted during the Civil War for obvious reasons. Yeah, yep. <laughs> but somehow this bowl survived. It's been all over the Eastern Coast. And it actually turns out it was passed down in the family matrilineally. And there was this history of it belonging to women named Alice. So you can see all these Alices through the years, including Dan's mother, who is still with us. So after doing all of that genealogical work, we could pin the bowl down really pretty exactly to the 1730s in New York. And that makes it such an amazing object. I mean, 300 years old almost. We're talking about 10 generations of descendants culminating in this guy. And he, when I told him this, I mean, he was over the moon. His mother was over the moon. Just to imagine being reconnected with your family history that way. Like. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the thing is, well, so, okay, well, well, what's it worth? Because the question is, well, what should the family do with it? And, you know, the honest answer was, you know, it would be worth something if we tried to sell it or if you put it at auction, you know, some thousands of dollars. But it's not some, like, amazing creation. It's a fairly ordinary bull without any maker's mark that just happens to have a really cool family history. So what the family ended up deciding to do was they wanted to make a donation of it. I connected them with the New York Historical Society. Oh, perfect. Who took it as a donation, and it's on, on display there, and they've put together a nice little history around it. The, you know, very, very happy ending. Although, again, to tease the Curious Objects episode about this, <laughs> that's not really the end, because there's a whole other side of the story that just turns it from a sweet, happy story into this mind-blowing, like, is magic real kind of thing. But yeah. <laughs> Leave that for another time. That is an excellent episode tease, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to be like, what? Magic is real. I can check this out. Yeah, it might be. Who am I to say? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is an absolutely incredible story. Yeah. We had one actually at the, the museum recently. Which museum? The, the Whaling Museum. Oh, okay. They put up a display on a prominent craftsperson, local uh, freed slave, mm -hmm. Paul Kofi. And it turns out while we were reading about the family Bible that they had on display there, it resembled the name of a friend of ours. 
Wars extremely closely. I ended up sending that to them, and they are very excitedly looking into it. Wow. Yeah. The family history lines up pretty much one-to-one. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was one of those like, things where we oh. saw the name, and we were like, wait. <laughs> That's a really unusual surname. Yeah, and then started putting huh. all these facts that we did know, and they've been actively looking into their genealogy. Like, so I was like, well, this is perfect. Like, It's like, oh, yeah, African-American background, married into the local tribe. Yeah. Da, da, da. Oh, wait. Hang on. <laughs> and there are scholars at the museum that can absolutely help them along with that. So I was just like so excited to be like, I think I think I found something. Like, yeah. That's really cool. Are you going to do an episode about that? I would love to, honestly. Yeah. I'd love to listen to that. As soon as the William Museum calls us back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to get full permission from the family. and But yeah, I would love to talk to them about it. Explain what a podcast is. <laughs> it's like car talk, but it's in your computer. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's one of the great, great values of museums is you never know what some is going to find themselves in, sometimes literally. Yeah. 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 Now, before we let you go, Ben, what do you wish more people knew about antiques? That's such a good question. Can I give more than one answer? I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, no, go for it. This is very habitual for me now, but... um... (laughs) This is not a multiple choice test. This is the essay portion. Yeah, okay, okay. (laughs) Thank God. Um, Yeah, okay. So my first answer is I wish more people appreciated that these objects are usable. I can't tell you how many people I see who, you know, come into our shop or who I see just in other places who are like, oh, wow, that's such a precious object. Like, I could never own something like that. But if I did, I would put it in a cabinet behind glass and nobody would ever be allowed to touch it. Or like people who are even shocked when I reach over to an object that we have on display and pick it up with my bare hands. (laughs) Is that okay to do? And yeah, I mean, not only is it okay to do, it's like, if you don't do that, you're kind of missing the point. You know, these pieces were made for use. And, you know, the metaphor that I use sometimes is I say it's like you're putting something behind glass or handling it with gloves or whatever. It's kind of like, you know, closing Notre Dame to worshipers because it's too important as a historical monument to be used as a church anymore, right? It's like it would kind of suck the soul out of it. Yeah. Obviously, there are pieces that are too fragile and too sensitive. I'm not going to be drinking wine out of an ancient Roman wine cup most days. For many reasons. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, 17th century English tankards, absolutely. I drink beer out of those all the time. Nice. That's what they were made for. And, you know, it's another advantage of silver is it's, it's pretty durable. But it goes for a lot of different kinds of objects. It breathes the life back into them. It makes them like what they were intended to be. And part of this is the museum phenomenon of like, oh, this is a museum object. That means nobody should be allowed to touch it. But, you know, that's kind of an unfortunate mindset, I think. In museums, yeah, they have to have restrictions because millions of people come through. And if everybody, you know, ran their fingers over that painting over the years, like it would eventually start to cause harm. But when an art dealer, like a painting dealer who specializes in, you know, Renaissance portraiture, when they go shopping and like go to a private sale or to an auction house or something and look at a picture, one of the first things they do is touch it because they got to feel the brush strokes. You know, it's all part of this connoisseurship. And, you know, it literally does no harm to the picture, but it's an amazing way to like learn a lot about it in a very short amount of time. So I just, you know, I think we have a sort of cultural tendency to be a little frou-frou about (laughs) antiques and art. A little bit. I wish I could convince people that being respectful and being scared of it are not the same thing. It's a really good way to put it. The best way to respect these objects, in my opinion, in in many or most cases, is to do with them what their makers intended for you to do with them. So, yeah, 
The one other thing that I would say is, and this is particularly as I think about people of my generation, you know, I'm a millennial. People often overstate the idea that like millennials don't care or young people don't care about antiques. I think that's not really true. Extremely untrue. As I think both of our podcasts have shown Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're all living proof of it. But I do think if there's one thing that I wish people of our generation could understand a little better, because I, I hear people all the time say, well, you know, these are really pretty things and like, that's a very cool story. But, you know, I would rather make my own stories. You know, I'd rather have spend money on my own experiences, like my vacations or what else do you spend money on? Dinner, right? I don't know. <laughs> But for me, it's like if you're buying the right objects, objects that you invest in, like mentally and emotionally, you are buying an experience. It's an experience you can have every day for the rest of your life and which only becomes more and more interesting as the days go by, as your relationship with it develops. To me, it's like if you want to put your money into experiences, the world of antiques is an amazing way to do that. It really is. So, yeah, if I had the money to buy a Super Bowl ad, maybe that's what I'd put in it. It just experience antiques. That's right. That's right. I have one more question for you. What's something you wish people knew about antique silver? Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got to go back to to the craftsmanship. And I talked a little about this at the beginning, but I think part of the challenge that we have as as antique dealers is like our competition isn't really other antique dealers, right? It's West Elm, you know? Oh yeah. And one thing people I think have a difficult time wrapping their head around is like subtle differences in quality that are maybe way more important than they initially appear. Take this flatware that I was talking about. You can buy flatware for three pennies a piece, right? Stainless steel or whatever. If you want fancy silver flatware, you can buy fancy like cast silver flatware for basically the weight of the silver or a little more, right? But if what you want is something that is that is intended to last not just for your lifetime, but for centuries, if you want something that's meant to communicate to you every time you use it, this artistic beauty of the experience, you know, if you want something that represents, like, doesn't represent that, that actually is a great achievement of human ability, of craftsmanship, of generation upon generation, of learned knowledge. If you walk into West Elm, like, you see objects, metal objects that are just, like, cast. They've got some, essentially, factory line where things are poured into molds. I'm sorry for picking on West Elm. I... <laughs> kind of earned it i should have said like miscellaneous furniture (laughs) store but um you know that stuff is not only easy it's like not even really human i don't know i guess somebody designed it that can be interesting but beyond that the production process is kind of mindless it's kind of mechanical there's no like human flesh in it (laughs) you know (laughs) the taxidermist going yes that is the most important part (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right so I think with silver, like when you look at old old pieces of silver or new pieces of silver that are just made with care by trained silversmiths, you might not at a glance really appreciate that this object, which is approximately the same size and shape and like profile as this other object is really that different. But I wish I could give people like a lot of people the experience of like seeing those two objects next to each other and really like picking them up one at a time and coming to your own understanding of what the difference is. Because I promise you, you will feel that difference and you'll see that difference. And it's huge. 
So yeah, I sometimes think like in our shop, we should, alongside the like finest examples of whatever that we can find, we should also buy really shitty examples. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Just give people a nice point of comparison. There's a story actually, apparently this was before my time there, but apparently this guy had come in and he was like looking at this coffee pot, this like 1710 coffee pot. And it was like very expensive. Well, it wasn't expensive. It was a lot of money, but it was, I think it was a fair price for what it was. But he was like, well, I went to this shop down the street and they had a coffee pot that like looks basically exactly the same as this. And it's also, it was also from 1710-ish. It was like about the same period. And he was like, and it's a quarter of the price. So tell me like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) how can you justify this? And the employee who was talking with him said to him, listen, okay, take this coffee pot, pick it up, feel it, look at it. Like you see, get familiar with it, right? Okay, now put it down. Now walk out the door, walk down the street and go and look at that other coffee pot and do the same thing that you just did with this. And if you can't tell the difference, buy that coffee pot. There. There you go. (laughs) And 10 minutes later, he came back and bought our coffee pot. Yeah, there it is. There it is. When you know quality, you know quality. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it's not really that, I mean, I, I'm talking about these like, quote unquote, subtle differences. They're not really that subtle. Like you don't really have to be an expert to tell. You just have to try it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most important thing is being able to find a point of comparison. And that is, there it is. That's the secret to expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Find a way to compare and you'll feel it. You'll get it. Gotta have that control group. <laughs> It's the elegant version of the, well, I could get it for $3 on eBay. Well, then do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Have a nice life. Yeah. Enjoy your eBay garbage. <laughs> I'll be here <laughs> curating. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Ben. This was a blast. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, it's been so much fun. Yeah, I really appreciate it. If people want to hear more from you, where can they do that? Well, the Curious Objects podcast is on your favorite podcast app that you're using to listen to this episode right now. now. (laughs) So look up Curious Objects. And uh, like I said, we're on a bit of a hiatus, but there's a long archive you can listen through. And then, uh, yeah, this fall, um, we're planning to put out a really exciting new season. Subscribe in anticipation of that new season. And check out the back catalog because it's fantastic. I learned so much about American Girl Dolls. Oh, yeah. That was such a cool episode. That was really fun. Something I would never have even thought about um, getting into, but yeah. I learned so much about early 20th century English gay men curing a stained glass correction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always more to learn about that. Yes, true. And we all should. If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!